Heavenly Father, you are so holy. In fact, you're holy, holy, holy. We thank you for the ability to be here to worship you today. We ask that your message fill us, that your Holy Spirit fill us, and that we, we may be used by you in whatever way you want. We thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you're just joining us today, we've been in a series going through the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, which is fitting, since it talks about last things, the end times, and what will happen at the end of history. And if you're following any current events, you know that history is quickly moving toward an end. Now, there are different views when it comes to time. Some view time as a never-ending circle of death and incarnation. But the biblical view is radically different from that. It views time as linear, as having a beginning and then moving toward a defined end. And the book of Revelation gives us a vision of that end. Revelation is just a series of visions given to a man named John who was then instructed to write those visions down, what he saw and what he heard. They were visions about events happening in his own day and also what might come in his generation, but they were also about the end of time, events involving the coming of the Antichrist, the tribulation, the culmination, all of that culminating in the second coming of Jesus. It's full of imagery. It's full of symbolism. And there's good doses of weird things that we read in Revelation, and we'll get quite a few of those today. But it's, the message itself is clear, and it's compelling. Judgment and justice that God has held in restraint so that men and women would turn to him will reach an end. The great redemptive drama that has been playing out on planet Earth has been moving towards its final act. And Revelation gives us that final act, that moment in time when God finally says, enough. Today we come to the second wave of great judgments that will come upon the inhabitants of the Earth, specifically those who have rejected God and continue to reject him. They're known as the seven trumpets, blown by seven angels announcing and unleashing seven key events at the end of time. But before we get to those events, we actually need to ground ourselves in something that happened long before this, back in the Old Testament, what was known as the Exodus. Because what happens then is a foretaste of what's going to happen at the end of time. Seldom has there ever been such a socio-political upheaval that rocked the world and altered the course of future events as the Exodus, all coupled with the supernatural intervention of God on such a, such a scale that hadn't been seen again until the time of Jesus. Here's what happened. The Jewish people had become enslaved by the Egyptians, the most powerful nation on the earth. 
But God heard their cries, heard their cries, and sent a man named Moses to deliver them from their bondage. Not just to deliver them, but to lead them out of Egypt to a promised land where they would become a nation devoted to the living God, eventually producing from that people the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus himself. But the Pharaoh of Egypt did not want to release them. So to soften his heart, God, through Moses, unleashed a series of plagues, each one increasing in intensity to get him to release his people. To make the point even clearer, the plagues came upon the Egyptians only, but miraculously did not affect the Jewish people. The ten plagues, first the water of the Nile turned into blood, resulting in not only a major kill of, of the fish and the, those who inhabited the, the water, but the inability to drink that water. Pharaoh pretended to relent. The water was returned to normal, but then he again refused to let his people go. Then that became a pattern with Pharaoh that he would, he would have a plague and then he'd relent and then the plague would be lifted and then he would harden his heart and refuse to let the people go. So after the blood of the Nile turned the blood of the Nile, there was a plague of frogs coming out of the Nile that overwhelmed the people. Then a plague of gnats swirling and biting animals and people to misery. A plague of flies so dense that it ruined the land. A plague on the livestock causing their death. A plague of boils that broke out on the skin of men and the remaining animals of the land. A plague of hail that beat down on everything in the field, stripping away all of the trees. A plague of locusts that devoured everything that hadn't already been destroyed by the hail. And then a plague of darkness for three days. So dark that no one could see or even leave their homes. Nine plagues. Nine times Pharaoh pretended to relent. Nine times he hardened his heart. But then came the tenth and the final plague, the death of every firstborn son. And then, and only then, did Pharaoh relent? Why go through this history of the Exodus? It's because at the end of time, God is going to be relentless in trying to get his people to soften their hearts. There will be plague after plague, many patterned after those in Exodus, but this time on a global scale. And again, people will harden their hearts. To the point where there is nothing left but judgment. The judgments will also be a witness to the final exodus of God's people from the bondage and the control of this world controlled by hostile powers. So with that in mind, let's walk through what's known as the seven trumpets. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blast. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. 
One third of the earth was set on fire. One third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Here you have the first of the Exodus parallels that we will see. Hail along with fire and blood thrown down onto the earth, resulting in the destruction of one third of all of the plant life. Maybe it was just me, but I asked myself, why, why a third? But you see, it's because punishment and judgment was being announced, being announced here is not yet complete. It's not final, but it is intensifying. If you were with us last week, we looked at the first round of judgments, what's known as the seven seals. And if you'll remember that the, each of those only affected a fourth of the earth. This time, it goes up to one-third. There's progression. There is intensification of these judgments. This first judgment would have been devastating. Destruction of a third of all the trees meant shortages in fruits and other food stables. The destruction of the grass meant an impending death of livestock, which meant the end of the world's supply of meat. Good thing we still have veggie meat. You can only imagine what was going on here. But let's, let's keep reading. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all the things in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Again, akin to the Nile being turned into blood, here it's the oceans themselves, resulting in the destruction of a third of all the marine life, but also all of our shipping vessels, all of our means of transportation on the water. This isn't just an ecological disaster of some kind caused by natural pollution or a volcano or something like that. This is truly an end-time judgment. Let's move on to the third trumpet. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky. Burning like a torch, it fell on one-third of the rivers and on, all, and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Here, we're not sure whether the star that falls is some type of angelic being or maybe a meteor of some type, but it affects the world's water supply. A third of it, in such a way that it became undrinkable. In fact, fatal if you drank it. Now, when we look at that language, you should notice something in that language. A great star fell from heaven is a reference to Satan being cast out of heaven. It's, it's, we're not, it's it, the, the fact that he is thrown down to the earth to torment us, we've been dealing with for some time. The loss of a third of the world's fresh water supply would have stunning repercussions 
in terms of having enough water to, uh, uh, for the population of this world to drink, to remain alive with drinking. The springs of water here also symbolize the word of God. And that perversion of the word of God, that making it bitter, even fatal, is, is a sim symbolism of the perverted gospel teaching that will come about and has already started coming about in certain areas. The fourth trumpet. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Another parallel to the Exodus. Here, as then, a plague of darkness descends on the land. An eclipse of the sun, an eclipse of the moon, a third of the stars, all resulting in darkness overcoming the day and the effect of the loss of light on the ecosystems would be devastating see the light here represents the gospel darkness is ignoring or denying that gospel you see many of these mess messages many of these stories that visions that john is telling us have both a literal and a symbolic meaning now, if those were bad, they were. But then, before the final three trumpets, John envisioned witnesses something else. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle. Some translations say a vulture. I don't know how you can confuse an eagle and a vulture, but I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror, terror. To all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Now some translations, you, instead of using the word terror, use the word woe. And if you were with us last week when we looked at holy, 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 when, you, when the, this language uses something three times, that's about as strong of language as you can use. So you, woe, 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 or terror, terror, terror. This is something significant here an angel in the form of an eagle or a vulture announces that the final three trumpets are about to be blown and they will be known as the three terrors or the three woes and they will not be terror for everyone though but for those who belong to the world who cling to the world who who have made the world and and all that it is in this world their God as opposed to those of us who belong to Jesus and not to this world in fact as with the plagues of Exodus those not of this world will be saved from many of the terrors to come then what are those final three terrors what are the last three trumpets well let's start to look at them then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to the earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. 
then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth. And they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron, and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions. For five months, they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. The first terror is past. But look, two more terrors are coming. So we begin the weird stuff in Revelation this week. An eagle being was right. It was certainly terrifying a scene to come to grips with. Again, paralleling at the Exodus, we have a plague of locusts. Only these aren't your mama's grasshoppers. These are like horror movie level locusts unleashed from the abyss. The abyss being a, an often a reference in the Bible to a subterranean abode that, of demonic hordes, a prison, if you will, for evil spirits. You may remember the story of Jesus confronting demons and a man who begged Jesus not to send them back to the abyss, but instead to send them into a herd of pigs nearby. You can imagine the kind of demons so evil that they had to be imprisoned and instead of stripping plants and trees they're committed solely to the torment of human beings and they're well equipped for it they have tails that sting like a scorpion human faces with long hair teeth like a lion wearing armor they have wings to fly for their attacks and to cement that these are indeed unleashed demons. Their leader is the king of the abyss. An angel, a demon that has what demons are known as, fallen angels, known as the destroyer. They're given five months to torment those on the earth, at least those who aren't faithful to God, who aren't in a relationship with God, who aren't protected by the seal of God. You see, throughout scriptures, the seal of God is this. Someone who comes to Christ as, a, as their leader and forgiver, the Holy Spirit then fills their life and they're baptized and they go forward with that seal set on them. And here we find that they are protected in the end times. There's never been a bigger reason to want the seal of God on you, these locust beings, which should be it. 
A limit of five months is probably not literal, but rather symbolic of an, a real intense but limited time that they would be able to attack. In fact, five months was the general life cycle of a locust. And the length of the dry season, spring through late summer, when the danger of a locust invasion was the greatest. And if this judgment is not horrific enough, think of it this way. This judgment and the one to come is not a direct punishment from God, but more about God handing the world over to itself. It's like God saying, you want life without me? You want the world of evil and the demonic idols and the occult immorality and lovelessness? All right. This is what it will look like. Here is the world handed over to evil. God not holding back that evil. Which brings us to the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year were turned loose to kill one-third of all the people on the earth. I heard the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. And in my vision, I saw the horses and riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. The horses had heads like lions, and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed out of their, from their mouths. One third of all the people on the earth were killed by these plagues by the fire and smoke and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Their power was in their mouths and, and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. Another bizarre scene that's terrifying to imagine, a great and vast army of demonic angelic beings more than 200 million which again may not have meant a literal number but more symbolically the fact that this is such a vast number was used to tell us that this army is breathtakingly large and it's released at at a precise time released at the precise hour day month year Throughout Revelation, we see that God is acting on a very exact timetable. The horses the army rode were the source themselves of the death of a third of the entire population of the world. From their mouth came fire, smoke, and sulfur, with tails that ended with what looked like the head of a snake designed to kill. It emphasizes the demonic origin of these beasts. Now, it's at this point that we pause for a minute. We think through the six trumpets that have been blown and the result of those six trumpets. One third of the earth has been set on fire, scorching everything in its wake. 
One-third of the oceans turn to blood, killing a third of all the marine life and destroying a third of all the marine vessels. One-third of the freshwater supply sources turn bitter, even fatal to drink. One-third of everything that produces light, the sun, the moon, the stars, darkened. Demonic, scorpion-like creatures unleashed from the abyss of the dead. An army of hundreds of millions of mounted demonic creatures breathing smoke and fire and tails like snakes, killing a third of the entire human race. Now, there are two ways to take this. You may be thinking, what a harsh and cruel set of judgments for God to bring to the world at the end of time. But before you jump and consider that solution, consider it from another perspective. Here is one last act of mercy. He allows limited judgments, five months of torment, one-third of the potential destruction, limited judgment even at the end of time, to get people to turn back to him. Surely those left standing after all of this would be on their knees, crying out to God for forgiveness, for help, for protection. Surely, unlike Pharaoh's, the plague on Pharaoh, the people of earth would be ready to soften their hearts. And if so, God is only too willing to receive them. That's why he's restraining, hoping for them to return. But what's the effect? What is the result? Is, is that the response to God's one last final act to get their attention? Let's find out. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols they can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or the witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It's unimaginable. But when the demons came to destroy, they worshipped the demons. When army hordes murdered at will, they kept on murdering. So what happened next? John's vision continues only this time in a personal way. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face, his face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great, a great shout, like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. And when the seven th thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said. And do not write it down. Then an angel, the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever. 
who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his people, his servants, the prophets. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Here, John is giving, uh, given a vision of a mighty angel of enormous size, so large that he had one foot on the ocean and another foot on the land. And he comes bearing the word of that final trumpet. But did you notice how he was described? Besides his enormous size, he was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. See, one thing that you will never find anywhere in the book of Revelation is destruction or judgment or calamity related to a flood. Even here, with, with the angel before the seventh trumpet, he comes bearing a rainbow, symbolizing God's promise made centuries before to Noah, never to destroy the world through a flood again. God always keeps his promises. Here, at the end of time, at the final judgment, that promise remains as do all of his promises. Then we read of the seven thunders. Apparently, seven more glimpses into the future. But these, John's not allowed to record. They will be revealed, but not until their proper time. And not through the vision that being given to John at that moment. Which tells us that while the vision in Revelation tells us things that will take place at the end of time, it does not tell us everything that will take place at the end of time. The second angel announces that according to the timetable of God, the time is up. Everything history has been moving toward is now coming to an end. There will be no more delay. A specific reference to what was revealed earlier in Revelation when the martyrs cried out for justice, they were told to wait until all of that was done, until the final martyr had laid down their life for God, and then justice would come. The angel here is saying that the time has come, that there's no more delay. The work and the mystery of God will be completed, meaning victory over the forces of evil and God's reign forevermore. John is then told to take that small scroll containing the announcements about the end of time and to eat it. Sweet to the taste, for it's the word of God. 
But because of its contents, the cataclysmic events to come, it would sour his stomach. Then John is told that there is more to prophesy. Which brings us to the two witnesses, something that has puzzled readers of Revelation for about as long as we've read it. And here's how it begins. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. Quick word of explanation here. This is kind of a reference back to the temple of Jerusalem, which had an inner and an outer court. Some think that it's a reference to the rebuilding of that temple in Jerusalem, but most don't. You see, the outer court was open to anyone. Jew, Gentile, anyone could enter it, could pray, could walk through it. It was, it was wide open. It was the outer court. But the inner court was not open. That was for those committed to the faith. That is where you had such things as the holy place with the altar of incense, and then beyond that, the most holy place, which was originally built by Solomon and held the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, there's a sense here was for, for John to again, symbolically in this vision, to mark the true believers, the true worshipers of God. And those outside of that inner court symbolically represented those in the outer court who were, to, who were not to be measured, not to be counted, those who did not remain faithful. But when we keep reading, we see this. They will trample the holy city, for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days these two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth if anyone tries to harm them fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 
7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past. But look, the third terror is coming quickly. We're still here between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Between those two come the two witnesses. Now, some interpret these as being a representative of all believers who testify in the final period before Christ returns. I believe they represent the Old and the New Testament, the Word of God. They're symbolic of the two people acting like Elijah and Moses. Others view them as two actual individuals who will witness and, and, and prophets not, will eventually be martyred. But I don't think that is the case. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, everything that has led to the time and the ministry of Jesus. At the end of their life, at the end of their time on the earth, after 1,260 days, they will be killed by the beast. Here a reference to the Antichrist. Which will, who will assume full power and control and unleash his greatest evil during the second half of the tribulation, which is the final rejection of the Bible. Seemingly kicked off by the killing of those two witnesses who are left after their death to lie for all to see, purposefully unburied, which is considered the, the greatest show of contempt imaginable. But after three and a half days, symbolic of their three and a half years here on the earth, they're taken to heaven. And accompanying that is a severe earthquake, resulting in thousands of deaths. That combination led survivors to become terrified, and John says to give glory to God in heaven. But don't read into that repentance that the other judgments couldn't bring about. This was just a terrified recognition that the Christ and the, not the Antichrist was in charge and Lord of all. Well, after all of that comes the seventh and the final trumpet. And it doesn't bring you what you might think a third terror would bring. Let's read it. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power. And have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people. And all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest, it is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Then in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. 
Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. Not what you had in mind, was it? The seventh and the final trumpet is the return of Jesus. The end has come. The kingdom of God has been put in its place. Did you notice the description of, of him, though? The one who is, the one who always was. There wasn't that third part. We usually see the words, the one who is to come. That wasn't there this time. There's, there's no the one who is to come. Why? Because this is the second coming. It's no longer in the future. He has come. We'll see this, that, that this ends the next round of the judgments as well, the seven bowls, telling us that everything we're reading, all of these visions, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, are actually unfolding simultaneously and all culminating in the second coming of Jesus. But why is that the third terror, the third woe? It's because to those who have rejected Jesus, the coming of him and that final judgment could only be sheer terror. It's a time of the final wrath, the time of final judgment, the time when those who persecuted and killed those who followed Jesus have to give an account. It's a time when destroyers would be destroyed. It's a time when justice would roll down. When the kingdom finally comes, depending upon where, where you are with Jesus, it's either a time of great celebration or a time of terror. But it is a time that is coming. Now, if you've been sitting there thinking throughout this entire message, what does all this have to do with me? Well, it's simple. This is happening. The end of time, it is happening. It is coming. Now, whether it unfolds in our lifetime or not, we don't know, but it will happen. And where you stand in relation to God is everything. In the end, the living and the dead will all be brought before the throne of God for a final verdict upon their life. A verdict they chose for themselves. It's a decision made about Jesus for their life. Either they say yes to Jesus or they say no. But whatever their decision was, it was their decision. It's my decision. Whether I choose Jesus or walk away from him, it is my decision. And it will shape the course of our eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the message that you give us here. Sometimes the language is, is inflammatory, it's weird, it's hard for us to understand, it's scary. But thank you for that great awakening to help us to realize that the end is near. And we have a decision to make. We have a decision to make for you or against you. And when that final verdict is read, 
Help us to be on your side. Help us to choose you. Amen.